going on daddy-daughter dates with my two girls. It's one of my favorite things to do. They're some of the most fun times that we have together as father and daughters. There are several traditions that we have established uh, depending on how we're feeling that specific day. We have a pancake date. It's pretty fun. We have a cupcake date. We have an ice cream date. We have a donut date. And we even have a chips and dip date. We love being together. But contrary to popular, popular belief, this time is not only about food. We like conversation. We like taking walks. We like going to the playground. We like going swimming. And from time to time, we also like to go see a movie and go on a movie date. Last week, we had one of these movie dates, and we went to go see the movie Monsters University. In this movie, these animated monsters go to school to learn how to be scary. That's the goal. Prepare these student monsters to be professional monsters so that with great skill and great strategy, they can sneak into little kids' rooms and scare them. It's a fun movie. They learn how to assess and understand everything about the child they're trying to scare. This knowledge of the child determines then their strategy, their tactics. Do they make a zombie face? I won't try to do, but if they make a zombie face, is the strategy to kind of go underneath the table or underneath the bed and then sneak up on the kids? Or maybe it's a strategy to make some preliminary noise, maybe to make some streaking nail sounds on the side of the bed to build up to a crescendo and then to jump out and scare the kids. There's all kinds of strategy involved in how you scare a little kid as a monster. And at Monsters University, you too can learn it all. (laughs) Well, the monsters, they have to be ready in a split second to be able to know how to assess the situation and scare the kid. Now, if you have small children at home like I do, you know that they have the propensity to worry about imaginary threats like monsters in the closet. Bedtime can, in fact, be a scary time. Now, most of us, I, I, I hope, most of us here today aren't still scared of monsters under the bed. At least I hope. But I do think for each and every one of us, there are things in our life that cause us to fear, to be afraid. Are there things that cause you to lay awake in bed at night in fear? Are there things in your life that scare you, fears that trouble your soul? What is it that you are afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of your health failing or even dying, or you're scared that your money will disappear or that you'll lose your visa. Maybe you're afraid that you won't ever get married or that your spouse that you are married to will never change, or you're afraid your spouse will leave you. Well, here's the question that I would like us to answer today as we study the Word of God. Here's really the question that the psalmist speaks to in our psalm this morning, and it's this. How do we find comfort in the midst of fear? How do we find comfort when we're afraid? 
And to answer that question, we look at the psalmist because that's what he seeks out to do in Psalm chapter 46. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn in the Old Testament. It's about a third the way through your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And we'll see that Psalm 46 makes quite an audacious claim that even in the most difficult times, seemingly impossible circumstances, you can overcome fear. And we'll see three things. If you're taking notes, this is the, kind of the outline, the structure that we'll move through this morning. Three things. First, we'll see that trouble will come. That it's inevitable. Trouble will come. Second, we'll see God's protective presence. God's protective presence. And then third, we'll see our call. Our call to trust God. Trouble, protection, and then call. But let me read through the entirety of Psalm 46 before we look at it, beginning in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In our psalm, the first thing that we see is that trouble will come. Trouble will come. As ordinary as our days may be, the world we live in is precarious. Some of us have lived relatively easy lives, Trouble rarely comes our way, but at some point for all of us, there will be difficulty. Don Carson has said, if you live long enough, you will suffer. The psalmist says, even the mountains, which seem to be the most solid thing of all, that which provides the most security, will prove to be nothing. Even they will fall away. The two things that are most immutable, most impregnable, give way, the earth and the mountains. See, for all our science and all of our technology, we can send rockets to the moon, and yet we are vulnerable to high winds and waves and earthquakes. We have no power to change the weather or the doctor's diagnosis of a fatal illness. Well, the psalmist starts out by showing us physical instability, but then 
moves from the physical to the political. We don't face only natural crisis, but a national crisis. It's not just natural disasters, but there's man-made disasters that trouble us. There's wars. Wars will continue. Countries will crumble. And the point is, the point the psalmist is trying to make here is that on our own, we're helpless. The world is a dangerous place. It's unpredictable, and we are underprepared to face it on our own. So what do we do when we face these situations? Well, for me, my most earth-shattering moments have all involved my health over the past several years. For those of you who are new to the church, you may not know, but neither of my arms work properly. I have a degenerative nerve disorder so that the main, one of the main nerves in each arm just doesn't work. And so I've had numerous surgeries, have constant pain and burning. I can't lift up my kids, can't open doors, can't shake hands, can't put on my seatbelt in the car. On this disability, as many of you know, it's humbling and it's painful. There have been late nights in my bedroom just pacing the floor back and forth again in depression, discouragement, where the waters were roaring and foaming and the mountains were trembling as I simply try to calm my own heart down. My point in sharing that, my point in saying that is that trouble will come. Your circumstances, they're different than mine. Your circumstances are different than the person sitting next to you this morning. We're all facing different trouble. So what do you do in these instances when the mountains are crashing down all around us? What do you do when things seem so unbearable for your soul that you can't even think straight? What do you do? Do you look for other ways, earthly speaking, where you can get your security? Perhaps maybe looking at what you do have. Some of us feel safe when our bank account is full and we have some money stashed away for a rainy day. Or maybe we feel secure when our job situation's good and there's no threat of being made redundant. Or maybe we take confidence in our children's high marks in school, knowing that they're going to get into a good university, they'll have a good life, a good career. Or maybe we take confidence in our medication, our next doctor's visit, or our next surgery becomes our hope and security. Or maybe we just run from our circumstances. You know, do you... You pretend as if everything is okay. The earth is crumbling around you. The mountains are trembling. But hey, everything's really okay. You just smile and move on and pretend as if everything is okay. See, what the psalmist does in this psalm is he doesn't escape reality. He doesn't hide like a little child covering his eyes thinking that the monster just won't see them and will walk away on its own. No, the psalmist calls it what it is. Right? Yes, it feels like the mountains are trembling. Yes, it feels like the earth is giving way. Yes, the nations are raging. And on my own, I just can't hang on. It's too much. It's too much. The psalmist, he calls it what it is. Oh, friend, trouble will come. 
Placing our confidence in anything in this world is like hanging on to a piece of string during an earthquake. It can't anchor our lives. There must be something else. Thankfully, there is hope. That's the second thing, second point we see in the psalm. So trouble will come, but the second thing is we see God's protective presence. There is indeed refuge for us in times of trouble, but it's not in the things of the world, but in God himself. The psalmist proclaims this at its outset. Look again at verse 1. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Regardless of what might be happening all around us, we have God's protective presence. Now, we don't know the historical setting for this psalm exactly. Some theologians say that this episode in verse 6 and the entirety of the psalm seems to fit well with the experience of Jerusalem during the invasion of Sennacherib in 701 BC. These were the Assyrians, and at the time of Micah and Isaiah, a vast army came. They overwhelmed Judah. They attacked their fortified cities. They besieged and attacked, plundered the city of Jerusalem. And the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, taunted King Hezekiah and said, look at what's happened. Your city lays in ruins. Look at what's happened. This must be proof that our God, our gods are better than your God. And he said, to Hezekiah, why don't you just quit and surrender while you still have the chance? Well, Isaiah runs to Hezekiah, and the prophet said, don't be listening to this nonsense. Go to our God today and tell them, tell him, tell God that without his help, we have no hope. And so Hezekiah goes to the God of the universe, the true God, and you know what God did? God sent an angel of the Lord and 185,000 Assyrians were destroyed in one night. Sennacherib was so humiliated that his sons actually murdered him and took over the throne. Now, God can deliver his people with his very word, and he can do so in an instant. Now, I love verse 6. Look, look down there. Verse 6, I think it's my favorite verse in this psalm. The nations rage the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. And the earth melts. Love that picture. The same God who commands creation with his voice comes to the aid of his people with that same voice. The Lord speaks. He has that much power and strength. The Lord speaks and the earth just melts. He's in complete and sovereign control. Now we see as we read through the Bible that Daniel understood this. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The apostle Paul in the book of Colossians says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Oh, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And friends, here's the comforting thing. The God who can melt the earth with his voice is with us. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The refrain is repeated again in verse 11. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now remember, hosts means armies. It was a military term. It means he is Lord over all. His protective presence comforts us and is described as a fortress. Now, our fortress was an isolated, elevated place where the people would build a stronghold against their enemy. It was a safe place of protection. But see, what made Jerusalem special was, was not its fortresses, it was not its mighty temple, it was not its heritage or customs or laws. It was because of God. It's because God dwelled there that made it special. But unfortunately, as believers, we often look to what we can see to be our fortress. We may look even to our church. We have great ministries, good music, nice meeting location. But see, like the meeting of old, like the temple of old, it was meaningless unless God was there. So the point is, in the psalm, is that God is the sufficient defense. In fact, really, he's our only defense. His presence, his power cast out all fears. Charles Spurgeon used to say, we are slow to meet him, but he is never tardy to help us. Oh, God is our refuge. Now, this idea of refuge back in the time that this was written would have instantly reminded the people of the cities of refuge that were in the land. You can read about these cities later on this afternoon in Numbers chapter 35. There were certain cities sprinkled throughout the nation of Israel that were designated cities of refuge. In those days, justice worked out on the principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And so even if you hurt anybody by accident, you better watch out, better be careful. But even in these cities of refuge, there was a touch of mercy. If a man killed somebody by accident, he could flee to a city. And so, for instance, if you're working and you're chopping up a tree with an axe and the head of your axe flies off and strikes someone in the head and kills them, the thing to immediately do is to run to a city of refuge as quick as you can. If you could get there, open the door, drag yourselves in, yourself in, get them to shut the city gates behind you, and if you could get in there, you'd be safe. You spent the rest of your life there, but at least you were alive and safe in a city of refuge. Well, the point is that when the earthquake comes and the storm is coming after you, or when discouragement engulfs you in the war, breaks out in the streets in front of your house or in the confines of your heart, don't fight it yourself. Don't ignore it. Head for the city of refuge. Admit that you have no hope on your own and head to God, who is that very city for us. Jesus himself said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will 
will give you rest. Oh, friends, God is with us. He is continually available. He is an ever-present help and can be found whenever you need him. And I love the picture of verses 4 and 5. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The river is placid in contrast to the raging waters of the previous verses. Rather than destruction, this river offers rejoicing. God's presence is like a refreshing river flowing through the city. You know, it's often in the growth of cities that cities grow right around a river. If you look at old pictures of Dubai, several decades ago, you see that the city started right around the creek, on the Bur Dubai side and on the Dira side. It's because the creek brings food, it brings wind, it brings transportation, it brings life. And the psalmist is saying that God is in the midst of us, like a river bringing life, gladness, and joy. Oh, God is our protective presence. But there's a third point we must see. There's trouble. God protects us. But thirdly, there's a call for us to trust God. We can't miss this. Our call to trust God. Really, the whole psalm is building up to verse 10. Kind of hits its crescendo, its climax there with an imperative where we hear God actually breaking into the scene in the first person. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You may notice this isn't a suggestion or an encouragement. It's actually a command. It has the force of a military commander. Cease. Desist. Attention. It's the idea of calling combatants to stop their fighting and to pay attention. It's not merely, shh, be quiet. No, God is insisting, stop. Stop what you're doing. You know, it's tough to see this force in the imperative in English. But in some sense, it's similar to a parent speaking to two children fighting. Stop it. Pay attention. Calm down. Look at me. It's as if God is telling us in the psalm, stop running around looking to other gods. Stop worrying about your life. Stop being afraid. Just stop. Stop. Pay attention. Quiet your heart and know that I am God. Now this knowing, however, isn't merely intellectual. Because you can know that there is God, but not actually know this God. See, knowing God is not less than factual knowledge, but it is more than factual knowledge. Now James tells us in his book that even the demons in hell know that there's one God, and even they shudder. But this is more than that. It's a knowledge of observation, but it's also a knowledge of affection. We must see and savor 
God. We must see and love what we see. That's the difference between us and the demons. It's only by looking and loving can he become our refuge, our strength, our fortress. Well, this command may be exactly what you need to hear God say to you this morning. Stop. Pay attention. Be still and know. Know at a real heart level that he is God. This passage reminds us of Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Jesus is saying, don't worry, even if these things are lacking. Don't worry, even if you're dying of hunger, thirst, or exposure. Don't fear, even if the world is disintegrating around you. Don't be afraid. Some of you may know who Elizabeth Elliot is. She lived a full life of earth-shattering events. The first was when her husband, Jim Elliot, was killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador over 50 years ago. He went in with four of his friends, landed on a plane in a field where they were to take the gospel to this violent tribe that had murdered everyone who had ever come to them from the outside. And yet these men, by the power of the Spirit, went and just minutes after arriving on this field were all speared to death by this tribe. Years later, Elizabeth Elliot was married again, this time to Addison Leach, who soon after their marriage was consumed by cancer in a devastating manner. And in relating to what these experiences were like, Elizabeth looked at Psalm 46, and she said these words, that in the first shock of death, everything that seemed most dependable had given way. Mountains were falling, the earth was reeling, In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. And she went on to say that the thing that is most important is to do what the psalmist does later, to be still, to know that God is God. God is God whether we recognize it or not, but it comforts us and infuses strength into our faltering spirits to rest on that truth. Friends, that's the point of this psalm. It's that there will be trouble. That God offers his protective presence. And our call is to trust him, to be still, and to know that he is God. Friends, we must understand that in the midst of utter chaos, God is with us. That he is with us and he is for us. Unless we understand that, In the bottom of our hearts, we will be afraid. We'll be terrified at little things, and we'll be terrified at the big things. But it's even more than that. See, the psalmist is not merely talking about confidence in the face of minor disturbances, nor is he only talking about major losses or the death of a loved one. Now, as terrible as these things may be, they pale in significance before the fearful prospect that our psalmist portrays. See, the psalm shows that our greatest need is that we need God himself 
to be with us and for us for all eternity. See, without God, we face something far more dangerous than work or school or even death. We face a greater storm yet to come. A storm of the eternal judgment of God when his full wrath will flash out against all who have sinned. That day of judgment is coming, and on our own, none of us are exempt from it. None of us can test out of it with high marks as if we could pass the Ten Commandments with perfection. No, all of us have sinned against the Holy God, and on our own, we will fear that day. And yet this psalm that we read this morning tells us that we don't have to fear. It tells you that you don't have to be afraid. No, the call is to us to be still and know that he is God. It's a call to cast out all fear and allow God to save us. We know the perfect love that casts out all fear. Now, if you want to identify what you love most and what you have exalted as to what is your true refuge and strength, all you have to do is sit back and think for a few minutes about the things you fear most losing. If you do that, you'll identify what you love most. See, fear always points to the thing that you love. But there's no fear in love because there's a perfect love that drives out all fears. And you need to love that love that will never leave you. That needs to be your refuge. And this is the love of Jesus himself. This is the good news that we call you to believe in today. It's not the good news of how great our church is. It's not the good news that we have some secret ritual that you can perform to be saved. It's not the good news that your earthly life will be without pain and suffering. No, it's far better than all those things combined times infinity. It's the good news that while there is nothing we can do to be saved, on that judgment day, God himself provides the way. God himself has fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he has come to bring salvation. God himself took human nature. He took and lived the life we should have lived, perfectly fulfilling God's law. And then by dying a sin-atoning death, he took the death that we deserved. And he conquered sin and death by rising from the grave, and he reigns now on high in heaven, even today, to give salvation to all who would believe this gospel message. Oh, Jesus is our Emmanuel. God is with us. He is the river making glad his church. Now, there are a lot of uncertainties in our lives. I don't know if our freedoms in this land will continue forever and we'll be able to meet freely like this. I don't know if my health will be stabilized or if my arms will degenerate to the point that I can't use them at all. I don't know if you'll have joy tomorrow. But here's what I do know for certain. Is that if you respond to this call to trust in God and to believe in him to save you and to be your refuge, an eternity of joy awaits. If God is your treasure, your soul will never be empty. If God is your refuge, you will never be deserted. If God is your fortress, you will never be unprotected. Oh, Jesus, 
God in the flesh bore the full desolation of fire and the wrath of the Father to bring the ultimate war to an end. Oh, come to him today. Trust in God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the God of Psalm 46 commands angelic hosts, volatile nature, expanding creation, historical chaos, wars and rumors of wars. He is the Lord of hosts. No wonder then that this psalm inspired Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In fact, this was Luther's favorite psalm. He would often sing it during times of discouragement, during tough moments in the Reformation when he was calling people to rediscover the true gospel of grace. He would often be discouraged because of the opposition, and he would get together with his good friend, Philip Melanchthon, and they would sing this psalm together. They would sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In that hymn, Luther speaks of God as Lord Sabaoth. This is not in reference to the Sabbath day. Sabaoth means hosts or armies. Similar language to the Lord of hosts in our psalm, it has the idea of a military commander. It's a title of omnipotence, of power, that God is the great king and Lord over armies and everything else. Luther speaks of a bulwark. A bulwark was a wall that would protect and guard the people. God is the bulwark never failing. He's a protection that keeps his people from all danger. Oh friend, have you trusted in this God? Have you trusted in him? Because God will establish his kingdom on the earth. Oh, be like the psalmist. Be able to face the ultimate threat of destruction and judgment without fear, with great joy and anticipation. Well, as we approach the Lord's table now, let me close by reading a letter written from a friend in prison. This man was with us at our Friday morning gatherings on occasion when we first started the church. Uh, He's from a nearby country. Two and a half years ago, on Christmas, this man was arrested. A number of church leaders in this country were arrested and put into prison. They dragged men and women out of their homes. Our friend was separated from his wife and his two sweet children and was put into prison. According to the government, he may be there the next several years, perhaps indefinitely. And he recently wrote a letter to his father that's been published. Let me read an excerpt from that letter to you. Dear Dad, please accept my warmest greetings from the heart of prison in the name of Jesus. I have gone through difficult days, but more than ever before, I have seen myself in the bosom of the Lord which is full of love. I've had a deep experience of loneliness, but I've never felt alone. Often I have been sorrowful because of certain things, but I've never been a slave of sadness. Often I've been insulted, humiliated, and accused, but I've never doubted my identity in Christ. Some have deserted me. Some have fled from me. But my Lord has never left me. 
I spent 360 plus days in a locked cell and didn't see the sunlight. But the mercies of the Lord were made new every morning. I have many things to say, but I like to say how much I love you. I miss you. Probably I cannot be with you for a few years. However, your word and exhortations are in the ear of my soul. I hope that at the end I will be able to see you. But if the Father calls me to the eternal abode, please protect and support my family more than before, especially my children who are dearest of my heart. The narrow way that I am passing through, I see as a cup that my beloved has given me, and I will drink it to the end, whatever that end might be. What really matters is that I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. This possibly is the sweetest truth of my life, that I am his and he is mine. Though the flock is cut off from the fold, yet we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. Because neither the walls, nor the barbed wires, nor the prison, nor suffering, nor loneliness, nor enemies, nor pain, nor even death separates us from the Lord and each other. With love and greetings in Christ. Friends, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is with us. He is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, our brother in Christ understood that verse 10 has come true. Christ has been exalted. He has resurrected from the dead and he stands at the right hand of the Father. He has been resurrected. He has been exalted and he will be exalted so that, that when we come to a worship gathering like this and we approach the Lord's table in a few moments, we celebrate. We celebrate that our God is alive and he is with us. See, communion is a visual reminder that God is with us, that Jesus is the bread of life. And as Philippians 2 says he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so this remembrance is just a small shadow, a small taste of the life-giving salvation that God has given to us. So if you're here today and you celebrate with me your new life in Jesus and you're repenting of your sin, we invite you to take part of this meal But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'd encourage you to let the bread, let the cup pass you by as you consider this good news today. 1 Corinthians 11 gives you instruction and says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Before we consider this death and resurrection of Jesus, we'll now take a couple moments as we always do to look after our own soul. Are you casting your fears upon him? Is he your refuge and your fortress? 
Let's take some time now in silent confession before the Lord for anything that we've held on more dearly than he. together as the servers and musicians come up to the front. Let's pray. Father, you are our refuge, our hope, and our reward. Though the mountains may crumble, the oceans may roar, your name remains the same. Wars may rage, Kingdoms may totter, but Father, you are in control over everything. Would our love for you cast out all our fears? Would our confidence in Christ Jesus give us peace beyond understanding? Even if we find ourselves in prison, and also those times when we find ourselves in plenty, in both times, would we find our security and refuge, not in the things we have or in the things we've lost, but in Christ alone. Would you fill our hearts with comfort and joy because of the Savior who has died in our place? Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for our salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.